Welcome to the EverSaline podcast, the show that ignites your passion for leadership and empowers you to develop a culture of continuous improvement. I'm your host, Matt Sims, and in each episode, we bring you fascinating insights and invaluable tips from our incredible lineup of guests. What do they all have in common? They share an unwavering dedication to excellence and are the experts in driving engagement, improving metrics, and reducing costs. The Ever So Lean Podcast with Matt Sims. You know it makes sense. This episode is sponsored by Catalyst Consulting Limited. Catalyst Consulting exists to help people and organisations work better today and be ready for tomorrow. They have a rich history of igniting business transformation using business agility, lean, Six Sigma, strategy deployment, agile and change management. They can help you and your organisation to develop the skills necessary to work and manage differently. To find out more, check out catalystconsulting.co.uk. Today, I am delighted to share the studio with Dr. Lynn Kelly, a distinguished professional who has carved an illustrious path marked by leadership roles in engineering, supply chain management, and continuous improvement across diverse industries and at a global scale. With a legacy of success, Lynn retired as Senior Vice President of Supply Chain and Continuous Improvement at Union Pacific Railroad in 2018 and now serves as a Senior Advisor to BBH Capital Partners, where her expertise fueled the firm's investment endeavours. Before her tenure at Union Pacific, Lynn held the influential position of Vice President of Operational Excellence at Textron, earning her a seat at the executive leadership table. She was also the visionary force behind Union Pacific's innovation programme, spearheading transformative thinking within the organisation. Now armed with a PhD in evaluation and research, Lynn's academic prowess shines through her teaching experience in undergraduate and graduate statistics courses. Prior to her foray in academia, Lynn's operational acumen led her to executive roles, including Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Doctors Hospital in Detroit. Throughout her extraordinary career, Lynn has forged a trail of achievement by expertly guiding organisations through change management initiatives. From continuous improvement and lean manufacturing to engineering, Six Sigma and supply chain optimization, Lynn's practical methodologies have consistently delivered operational excellence that surpasses customer expectations. Lynn's influence now extends beyond the boardroom as she captivates audiences as a keynote speaker and esteemed author. Known for her ability to present tangible and enduring change management strategies, Lynn empowers individuals and organisations alike. Hot off the press is her latest book entitled Change Questions, which was released on July the 27th. And building on her incredible experiences, this promises to be an absolute game changer that I cannot wait to hear more about today. Now, co-authored alongside John Shook, Change Questions is accompanied by a downloadable digital workbook that encourages readers to embark on transformative change management activities. Now, with a dynamic blend of operational expertise and a passion for cultivating high-performing cultures, Lynn has left an incredible mark on industries as diverse as transportation, manufacturing, healthcare, finance and education. Her commitment to driving operational excellence and her passion for people sets her apart, making Lynn an invaluable asset to any organisation seeking to ignite transformative change. So sit back and relax as we get to know Lynn and learn more about her change questions model. Lynn, welcome to the Ever Celine podcast. Thank you, Matt. So nice to be here. It's nice to have you, but that was an absolute nightmare to read. I must uh, say, I, I, I made a... I was like, I put me to sleep. I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> I had to wake you up. <laughs> Give you a prod. Wake up, Lynn. Uh, I'm like, is he done yet? Is he done oh. yet? <laughs> anyway, you, you, you did a good job. <laughs> and I forgot to mention all of that. What a wonderful human being you are. I just find you so great to be around. Your energy, I can bounce off of it. I love it. I felt the same way about you, honestly. Yeah, it's fun. We should have fun right now. We should. And we're setting ourselves up for a real failure here because people will listen and go, well, they were boring. <laughs> yeah, I oh, know. You're right. Well, we can then stop listen now. To the first we can just minutes. say that's it. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah, fa thanks for tuning in. It's been a pleasure. That's This is Lynn. I'm Matt. Thanks very much. Time flies. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh dear. Look, it's wonderful to have you here. I love having guests from across the globe. And as we spoke the other day, you've got a beautiful backdrop. Just fill the, the listener in on what's behind you right now. Yeah, the right, the back of the mountain. So Park City Mountain Resort, which is owned by Vail, which is the largest ski resort in North America. And it's just right out my window there. So uh, I can walk amazing. over and ski. Yeah. Not today, though. That today. is amazing. <laughs> what you can't see, guys, is right behind him. There's just random people whizzing past on skis. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It's just brilliant. I love the fact that you've got that backdrop. <laughs> it's a movie. <laughs> no. you are. Yeah, it is a movie. You're so lucky. Do you ski yourself? I do, yeah. So you pop out for a quick ski now and then. Yeah, when I retired, I became a ski instructor for a year. And I thought, what the heck? So I taught 103-year-olds to ski wow. and I needed a knee replacement. No way. And it was over. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah, was, uh... That's hard. It's, I'm one of those, um, I call it like I'm a... They call it in the UK, it's a term, the fair weather sportsman, which basically means they only go out and do sports when the weather's nice. I'm slightly different to that. I'm a safe sportsman. So I only play sports where you're not going to get injured. So things like snooker, (laughs) pool, cards, poker, (laughs) all of those sorts of sports where you're not going to get hurt. They're my thing. And like, is ping pong a step too far? Because I noticed you didn't. mm, Mm, Yeah, I could do ping pong. Yeah. Ping pong is one of those games, you know, that looks easy, but it's actually really hard. Yeah, no, it is. And I mean, maybe if you had a helmet and padding, you you could maybe <laughs> Like drive. a three-year-old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then you could play ping pong. I mean, you can You broaden, know me well. Uh, you broaden your horizons a bit here. Yeah, yeah. I just I just get too scared of things. That's the problem with me. I, I'd love to try skiing. I think I would actually really enjoy it, particularly snowboarding. I think I would enjoy right, it, but I'd just be right. so scared of hurting yeah, myself. Yeah. Is there like a rail you can hold? Can I go down the side and hold on to the railings? <laughs> um, well, you could try. <laughs> People laugh <laughs> <don't> at me. Think... <laughs> Let's talk more about you. Oh, really? Because you okay. have got an, an amazing career that we just touched on briefly. Give us a, a bit of a summary about the, you know, about the things that you've done and the places you've been, because it sounds incredible. Well, the part that I didn't tell you, but Matt, I just trust you and I can, I, I feel this bond with you, is that I was actually a hippie. <laughs> I played in a band. I lived in a commune. <laughs> <laughs> I never tell people the commune bit and you won't share it. I know you won't tell anybody. No, no, no. no, no it's no. just you and me talking Thanks, now. thanks. And then, uh, and then when I was 28 years old, I had two children at home under the age of three, not working, taking care of the kids. And uh, my husband came home and said he lost his job. And there were no jobs in Detroit because it was the oil crisis. So it was survival mode. So that's when I started college. And I went back to school full-time, but I also worked full-time as a secretary. And um, six years later is when you started in your introduction is when I, I worked my way from secretary to the chief operating officer of this super tiny community hospital. Um, but I had my master's degree by then. And then we had all these tragedies. I was like 34, five something. And my mother died, my husband's mother died, and my husband's brother Whoa. died all in the same year. And I realized I had gone back to work and school to give my family stability and it was kind of like that bait and switch. Suddenly, like I thought, well, who, you know, family's the most important. And here I am, you know, just devoted to my school and work and all this stuff. So then my husband and I switched and that's when I got my PhD and he went back wow. to work. So that's kind of, that's a little, yeah. a little twist on all of that. So, yeah. And then when I got the PhD, I, when you said living other places, I, um, I was at a university where every semester I went over to China and taught in the international or Shanghai Institute of International Finance. And I taught statistics in a graduate program when there weren't many Americans there. So it was really a wonderful experience. That's amazing. Do you know what I find really frustrating as an adult is that when you get older and as you get older, you do generally realize that family is the most important thing. You realize that you work to right. live rather than living to yeah. work. The problem that I found is I've realized this now, but I've got myself in a position where I can't step back from the things that I do because you live to your means yeah, and, and exactly. I've, I've learned to live on, on the money that comes yeah. in. So you can't step back from it. You become trapped. Right. 
and you can't do anything about right. it. You just do the lottery more, hoping that you win, <laughs> and then you can <laughs> live yeah. more. No, you know what I, I mean. I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean, and and it's it's a hard thing to do to get that balance right. And then mm. I always felt incredible guilt with my kids because there weren't a lot of moms that were working at that point. I mean, I'm I'm 67 years old right now. Full disclosure, so there weren't a lot of moms that. No way. Yeah, oh, you're sweet. And a lot, oh, you thought I was older. No, you thought I was older. <laughs> I had you down to 75 easily. <laughs> oh, well, thanks, man. I'm 67. I didn't really. I didn't so really. Anyway, um, 21. But uh, yeah, uh, now I forgot what I was going to say. So whatever. <laughs> I've thrown you. You were talking about the opportunity to live life and not have to worry about work. Right, right. And then, but, you know, you got to find the balance. But I always had this guilt because all the friends of my kids, their moms were stay at home back then. You know, back then it was a lot of stay at home moms. Mm. And I felt such guilt. But now, I mean, my daughter's 42, my son's 40. And and I've asked them multiple times to believe my guilt. So do you really, do you feel like you, like you missed out? And they, and they both say, mom, you were always there when we needed you. So I, you know, I, I think there is a, a quality quantity thing too. You know, I, I, I think that we don't have to be quite as hard on ourselves as long as mm. when they need us. And like, you know, I come home from work and help them with their homework and of course, and try to show up at every game I could. But I also think, for them knowing they're not the center of the universe and that you have a life too, it's also makes them self-sufficient and there's a balance. I think there's a really good balance, but I, I get what you're saying. It's hard. I think when you, when you can find that balance, you, you, you've got to snap at it. You've got to take it. Yeah. And I, I, me and my wife always have this conversation where we go, Oh, we'd love, I'd love to do that. And I go, oh, I'll do it when we retire because I can't do it now. There's no time. You know, mo- mon- Monday night's brownies. Tuesday night, the, my son goes to scouts. Right. Wednesday night's cricket. Right. Thursday night's tennis. It's like, when when can I actually do something that I like doing? Right. It doesn't happen. No, that's true. When I retire, that's how it works. Well, then, then you can teach skiing. <laughs> oh, I yeah, I don't know if I'd be very good at that. What's really interesting, you said, so I, I fall into the same age bracket as your son and daughter which is interesting. So I, I sort of grew up the same sort of time. So yeah. it'd be interesting that you you were parenting at the time that my parents were parenting. And, and I look back and and you say that you that the guilt of not being there. And, you know, my, yeah. my dad worked most of the time when I was younger. My mum stayed at home. And I don't have feelings of, oh, he was never there and all that. Right. I remember all the times that he was there. So you, you do, I think you're yeah. right, you are hard on yourself probably. Yes, yes. I bet you were a brilliant oh, you're mum. you're very, very kind. Right. Where are we? What are, what are we, we talking, talking about, about then? About? We are talking about. What are we talking about? We got off on one. People are tuning in thinking, what's this all about? It's like a daytime show. No, they've already, they've already tuned out. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, we they've gone. Come back. You know, like, like I had you at Hello, they lost us. We lost Yeah, them. they've gone. Come back. Come back. Come back in the room. Change questions then. Sounds like an absolutely fascinating title. What does change questions actually mean? What it means is there are many, many excellent books out there with change methodologies. And I've read them all and love them all and benchmark them all. What we wanted to do, and this is John Shook and I who wrote this book together, what we really wanted to do is to say, but not every change is the same. And sometimes you overproduce or overprocess if you go down somebody's list of eight questions and answer every or, or eight elements actually and do every single thing, right? And we also felt there were some areas that were missing in various ones, but when we put them all together, of course, it was very holistic. So we came up with 11 questions. And these are, anytime you're implementing change, you consider or ask yourself, all 11 questions, because your probability of your change sustaining, if you've considered all of these, will like increase every single one, additional one that you answer that's appropriate for you. And then you come out when you're done with a customized approach for your change, which then may be different than the next change that you have to implement, because every change is different. And so this is a way to customize your approach to the change. And this came from experience of change previously with yourself and John. You'd both tried other methodologies and you sort of came back to this as the key foundations. If you exactly. Like. Well, well, almost exactly. The thing was that we, we actually failed a lot, both of us. And every time we failed, then we went out individually. So he's got a 40-year career. I have a 40-year career. And independently, we were each failing and figuring out what we 
we should do differently. And the way that he did was experiments. He's head of the Lean Global Network at all of these countries that they work in, over 30 countries. They were out looking at what are the success factors and what are the failure modes of these lean implementations that have succeeded and failed. And that's where he got his list. And what I did is I went back to the research and I would look up, okay, well, now it says 16% of all change initiatives fail because they don't, people don't have the capabilities needed to implement the new change. 5% don't want to do it, but the, but the other ones that do, 16% of them can't. So, you know, I, so I built mine from the research and my failures. And then when we got together, we said, wait a minute, we got, we got the same methodology, which is so (laughs) cool and so fun. And then we turned it into questions questions because we were both quasi asking questions when we were using both of our individual methodologies. And we just said, well, let's call it change questions and tell people answer the ones that are appropriate. So that's how we, that's how we came to this. So you don't need to answer every question of the 15. It's just the ones that are appropriate to what you're trying to do. Right. And what's cool about it is that if you read them all, you will consider everyone, right? So some things like, like you could have something in your organization. It could be something in your infrastructure. Maybe it's the metric that people are measured by. And you don't even realize that this measurement that's in their annual evaluation might be how quickly they they do a task and you're changing something that will actually add time to the process but increase customer sat. Well, you don't realize that you've got a conflict between the way they're measured and uh, for success yeah. and your implementation. And rather than finding out after the fact, you ask yourself, okay, is there a metric that's working against this change initiative being successful and and other things in that category. It's just a little checklist. Is there a metric? Is there a reporting relationship that will, you know, you just look at the things that are ideas that we found in the literature and in our experience. And that's so common as well. I, I think back on my experiences, we tend to work in silos and we don't think about what's going on upstream, downstream, and the impact you could have further up. I remember I did a, a project once in a company where I was changing the flow. It was effectively trying to increase the flow in the cells. Right. That, uh, say cells. They weren't prison cells. They were cells where people were working, <laughs> workstations. My objective in my little work area was to increase the productivity in that area by 50%. Yeah. And I put months and months and months work into creating this process. And this process of the workstations I was working on sat probably about stage three out of 10 for the entire process. And I worked and worked and worked on it, got the pilot going. And all of a sudden it was a great success. I was sitting there high-fiving myself. I'm smashing it. I'm smashing it. We're doing like 60% more. Anyway, then the line manager of the next department up came up (laughs) to me and said, Matt, what's going on? We cannot, and I completely crippled the entire operation because I hadn't taken into account what was going to happen elsewhere. So my benefit was actually losing us money and, and the results were terrible when you looked at them on a global scale exactly. because of all the bottlenecking that I was causing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get it. And that's so common. It really is. I'm, I love your story. Yeah. Taking you back ever so slightly, you said something earlier that, that made me think, right? You said that most, and John as well, most of your learnings came from failure. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the biggest pieces of feedback and questions that I get from people that listen to this podcast is in their organizations, they feel like they can't fail normally they're trying to impress the the senior leaders are giving them the opportunity to do continuous improvement. They're not necessarily bought into it at that stage. And they're trying to prove that it works and they feel that they can't fail because if they fail, they're just going to get the reputation of this doesn't work. You can't do it. And one of the things I try to emphasize is that we need to create that safe environment, that psychological safe environment where you're allowed to fail because that's where you learn. Yes. How have you dealt with that in your career? You, you, presumably, you've come across that situation. Oh, <laughs> a multitude of times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, the thing is, it is depending on the scope of your initiative and the scope of your responsibility. You know, it's often hard to change a culture that doesn't value learning from failure. You know what I mean? That's a hard thing to do. So you can't, I don't think as a person working in an organization, unless you have the power to start changing that culture, then you have to figure out how you're going to be effective in a culture that punishes failure or doesn't like failure. And I guess what I've always done is really led with data. Just like we say in a lot of things, you, you, you know, if you're trying to get a message across, you lead with data. I mean, I've always Mm. led with data 
one of the change questions is, is there a way that we can pilot this? Even if it's a simulation, even if it's like a little paper exercise, try to just really mitigate the risk of failure so that when you're actually implementing and trying to get people to buy in, you don't have as big a failure. So so that's one of the things I've always done, but still failures are going to happen. And when they do happen, then I also point to the corrective action. Okay, well, this is great. You know, I mean, I just pitch it as this is what we've learned and this is what we're ready to do this next thing and we're going to go for it. And you just, you know, you just try, even if the culture isn't there, to present it as a learning opportunity. And then, you know, there's always the, all the research that says only 30% of change is ever successful anyway. And so you can always point to that. Well, I'm at 45%. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm successful. <laughs> So in a previous episode, um, I spoke to Dr. Jeffrey Leiker. Oh, yeah. And and he said something that really got me thinking. He was an incredibly smart guy, yes. really leaves food for thought. Exactly. He plants seeds and then they grow in your mind <laughs> when you finish talking to him. And, um, and he gave the analogy where he said that if you want to lose weight, say you want to lose 20 pounds, don't focus on the fact that I want to lose 20 pounds in six months focus on micro things like why am I not losing weight? What do I do? And in your mind, you'll go, right, well, I eat junk food in the evenings. Yeah. So your first step is breaking that overall objective down into a smaller bit. So I'm just going to stop eating junk food in the evenings. And you do experiments to stop you doing it. So yeah. the one yeah. he gave, which was really funny, he said, you hide the junk food in a cupboard and you put it in the cupboard and you, it's all in one place. He goes, but it didn't work because you knew where you'd hidden it. So you keep going <laughs> to eat it. So it kind of defeated the object. He goes, so you failed, yeah. but you learned right. that that didn't right. work. And the next step is, oh, I'm going to hide the junk food in the boot of the car uh, or the trunk of the car, yeah. I think you call it in yeah. America. And then I'm going to go and, but then it didn't work because I knew where it was and I kept going to get uh -huh. it. And then the third step was, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy junk food when I do my weekly shop. When I go to the store, I'm not going to do it. But what happened is I, I kept popping to the local store to buy chocolate because I was really fond of chocolate. Yeah. And it was really interesting. So rather than telling somebody you will lose 20 pounds in six months, you let them find the things that don't work and find their own way. And it might take longer. Yeah. Because as a, as a leader in an organization, sometimes you might know the answer. You right. might know what's going to work from your experience. Right. But if you go in there and tell them how to do it and you do it, is that going to have the longevity to sustain once you walk away? Or if you, it's like with your children, you let your children, you know, you, you know your child's going to fall over or trap their finger in the cupboard door if they keep pulling it open. Yeah. And in the nicest possible way, sometimes they need to trap their finger to learn that that approach doesn't quite work. I need to do something different. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And you know, one of the things that you said that I just love is the idea that, you know, when we're trying to change our own behavior, like let's say we're going to stop eating junk food. Okay. Let's say that's the thing we're going to try to change. And we try something, even if we're lean professionals, we know about experiments. We know about this whole culture of failure. You know, let's learn from it, whatever. All we do is beat ourselves up. Oh, I ate junk food. Oh man, I can't believe I ate junk food again. Right. But instead of like taking yeah. that whole lean idea into our own personal selves and internalizing it and saying, Hey, I failed, but what did I learn and what's my corrective action? And then let me try it again. And if I fail tomorrow, I'm at least moving along a path of improvement, right? And instead of, I think we wallow in beating ourselves up. And as soon as I start to beat myself up, I will go and eat junk food. Honestly, <laughs> that's yeah, my go-to. I'm just going to say I that. I know, that's my go-to. That's my go-to. <laughs> you think I might as well just eat it because I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> then you just carry on. Exactly. It, it's so true. But that, that environment, I cannot express enough to people that are trying to do this in their organization. And as they're working through your change questions, you need to find a way to convince those around you that it's okay to fail. And if you're not afforded that privilege, then you're not going to, it's not going to sustain and it's not going to work because you're never going to nail it first time right. every time. You have to do experiments. Agreed. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I wish I'd have known that 20 yeah, years I, ago. I know. So the book itself, I was looking on your website just now, and we'll share the links to the website in the description below so everyone can access this. And it comes with a digital workbook. Yeah. And I absolutely love this idea. Tell us a little bit about that. Good. And it's one of the things I'm most excited about. So, so when John Shook and I wrote the book and we used the Union Pacific case study, so we've got it following the whole way through over a course of seven, eight years, we said, well, What's our goal? Like, you know, the first thing in lean, you know, often, and the first thing in the change questions you say is what's your 
what's your purpose, right? So what was our purpose in writing the book? And we, we talked about how we want to get this idea of way to the change questions out to as many people as possible. The, the goal, the purpose is not to make money. It's to get as to many people as possible. So what we did whenever I used my version of the change questions, I had a digital playbook because I was at some point when I was at Textron, we, were, we had facilities in 32 different countries. And so a lot of times I was doing things remotely. And, and so a digital workbook that we called it playbook back then was critical to be able to plan change over multiple with multiple people all around. And so I was using it for like 15 years. And so what we decided to do is to make it free so that we get, you can do it. You can use it without the book. You don't have to buy the book. The book is going to, I mean, the book is 240 pages. The, the digital workbook is 40. So we couldn't duplicate the book in the digital workbook, or else we'd have two and one would be free and one not. But if, you know, if you get stuck, if you need more examples, if you want stories, if you want the research behind everything, you can get the book, but you can go right now to changequestions.net and you can download the digital workbook and you can start using them in this fillable PDF with your teams. And then one other thing I want to mention before, if we're going to deep dive into that, I just want to say one more thing. We do ask for your email before you download it. And I'll tell you why we're not going to market to you. We just want to continue to improve the workbook. And so as we have improvements, we will let everybody know who's already down. Hey, the latest and greatest is, is on the website if you want it. And so far we have in just three weeks of reaching out, we have four, five, five universities that are going to offer the digital workbook as their student project in their change management course in their graduate schools. Wow. It is like, it's like wildfire. It's so exciting because that was our goal. That was our purpose. Yeah. And already it's just starting to spread it. And, and the book hasn't come out yet. <laughs> but that's brilliant. But, but it just goes to show, though, that you spotted a gap. And what you're doing really will make such a difference to people. That's so cool. I'm so pleased. That's amazing. Yeah, we're excited about it. I bet you are. I bet you're nervous as well because they say it hasn't come out yet. <laughs> it might come out and they'll go, oh, well, we <laughs> can you imagine? They change their mind. They won't That's do that. Right. Uh, they yeah, won't do well. that. And I'm really glad, by the way, that you moved away from calling it a playbook. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar, but there's, um, there's a piece of software that uh, a lot of large organizations use and it's called playbook ah. and it's used to, for, to program manage effectively. But huh. basically what it does, you input all of the milestones okay. into it or the actions that need to happen. Yeah. And what it does, it just email barrages everybody you've set that oh. as a task. It keeps emailing them. So you need to do this task. You need to do this task. Oh. And it switches you off so oh, badly. Yeah. You get so fed up with it. Right. Um, and the word play, as soon as you mentioned the word playbook, I was like, nope. You broke out <laughs> of sweat. That I could instinct. see it. I saw yeah. it. You were all of a sudden you were like turned red. I was getting up. I was good. <laughs> see you later. I turned the camera yeah, off. Yeah, well, I didn't know that. And I'm yeah. glad you told me. But yeah, we we decided to do digital workbook just because we had and we had discussions about it. Well, you know, is it a playbook? Is it a workbook? So good good thing. Luckily we chose workbook. You chose well, and they do say, and I'm a firm believer that if something's meant to be, the right path just sort of creates itself. Mm. And there's a great example of that happening. Out of interest, what came first, the questions book or the workbook? What was in your mind before the other? So I, I had developed the workbook first and I was using it. And then Lean, LEI, Lean Enterprise Institute would have me teach it at their summit. And I, we would do a one day course and everybody would have the digital version and we would just go through and we'd say, okay, if you have a change initiative that you're going to be implementing, those are the people that came, then we're going to work through this whole, all 11 change questions today. And at the end of the day, you're going to leave with a, a rough draft, probably 80% plan to that uh, you can go out and implement your change initiative. And you've now increased your probability of sustainment tremendously. And then they'll, they knew, they would know that if there are things that they still had to do in the plan, but they'd know what those were. So I would teach it as a one day course. And everybody asked, well, we need the book. We need the book. We want the book. And I'm like, yeah. And so I'm like, ah, I'm not going to write a book. And then COVID hit. So what are you going to do during COVID? Everybody he wrote a bored. book. Yeah, everybody wrote a book. John wrote a book. <laughs> I wrote a book. And then we said, well, wait a minute. We wrote the same book. And then we had to, we had to unwrite it and combine it and rewrite it. So <laughs> uh, well, do you know what I did during COVID? 
I learned to cut my own hair. <laughs> I've always wanted to learn how to do it. And it was one of those times where if you had a dodgy haircut, nobody minded. Everyone was like, oh, yeah, COVID, COVID haircut. Yeah, and yeah. I learned, I watched a video on YouTube huh. and I learned how to fade it from one length, oh. fade it down to oh. on the side. Yeah. I haven't had, I haven't been to a barber's since I cut my own hair. You look at it now thinking I can tell. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, but, um, I can't because your headphones are on, but I can see Yeah, why. I cover do it you, up. Do, do you always walk around with headphones on so no one no, can tell? No, not normally. a hat. No, oh, okay. no. Okay. I, it's not too no. bad. But, I'm quite oh, pleased no, with it. Okay, okay, but, um, good, good. So I think okay. COVID, I know, I know COVID was horrific and it was a really right. bad time, but right. joking aside, it was a real time for people to sit and learn new skills and do things like write books and learn to cut hair and yeah. stuff. It was kind of like a reset opportunity, wasn't it? It was. And look how it changed the world. I mean, there's very few roles out there. You just go on LinkedIn and you look at jobs they're all hybrid yeah. or remote. Very, very few of them now are permanently in a location unless they have to That's be. That's right. And I read a study that said that if you are hiring and you need to have permanent location, uh, you have to pay 7% more in order to get somebody to come to your job rather than a hybrid job. Interesting. So there's a premium on a full-time face-to-face thing that, that the companies have to pay if they want everybody there. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. For the first half of COVID, I didn't have a workspace oh. at home that was dedicated to work. So I was trying to work on the dining room table. Then the, my wife would come in with the yeah. kids and they'd be crying. So I have to move to the, the other room and then I'd move upstairs and eventually I'd be on of the course. bed. And I couldn't separate the two. Yeah. And then when we moved, I had a dedicated office that right. was separate from the right. rest of the house. And I found that a lot easier. And I think yeah. I'm very fortunate, but people that haven't got that, I can imagine it's very difficult to do that. I digress. <laughs> I digress. Are you ready to elevate your team's ways of working? Are you seeking fresh insights and growth opportunities? Our experts will assess your team's practices, providing valuable insights for improvement and celebration. Reward and recognize your team with this certification tailored specifically for creating an improvement culture. The BQF Academy accreditation acknowledges your journey, outstanding outcomes, and future plans. Whether you utilize Lean, Six Sigma, project management, or continuous improvement techniques, this certification celebrates your incredible work and positive impact. Propel your team's performance to new heights with the BQF Team Excellence Culture Certification. Visit www.bqf.org.uk today and let's celebrate your success together. 13-time single prize winner, Dr. Jeffrey Liker, and Toyota Kata author, Mike Rother, have created the Improvement Kata and Coaching Kata online course. This inexpensive, compact program is designed to transform your thinking and approach, making you a highly skilled learner and coach. Engage in deliberate practice to turbocharge your progress. You also get lifetime access to the materials, including all of the bonus interviews. Why pay up to 10 times the price elsewhere? Listening to some consultant, when you can gain direct insights from the masters themselves. Skip the rest and go with the best. Join us today and embark on your journey to excellence. Just click on the link below to start your journey. I was just looking on changequestions.net at your website. And do you know what I really like about the book? Yes. And I don't know if it's something to do with the colors. I really like that lime greeny type color and the white, but it's very slick looking. The book looks like what I expect a continuous improvement book to look like. Oh, do you know what I mean? Good, good, good. We wanted, we wanted simple, uh, our goal was simple and elegant, yeah. like as in elegant solutions, right? So that's, wow, that makes me happy. But do you know what, with the colors as well, so white tends to mean pure, it means mm. organic, it means fresh, like undamaged, nice, and green mm. means good. So you, I don't know if it was mm. purpose, but it's kind of like the colors insinuate what you're going for okay. as well. We, we hadn't actually thought that deeply. We're not, we're a little, well, John, no, John Shook is very deep. He probably thought of all that. All I said is. <laughs> Go for it. You know, <laughs> simple. Yeah. I like it. Did you see the little question mark, the way it moves in the, in the website? No. Where's it, no. Where, where's it move? Oh, Where am I looking for the moving? In, in, On the left-hand side. Yeah. yeah I see it now. Is that the coolest thing ever? That is so cool. <laughs> 
Oh, look, even if you're not going to buy the book, go to changequestions.net and check out the moving question mark on the left. That is so cool. I didn't notice that before. How could you miss that? I know. I was too busy looking at the slickness of the book. Okay. Okay. But thank you. That's brilliant. Really good. Anyway, I keep taking us off on a tangent. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I, it's okay. It's I, just, all good. I just get interested. Well, I told you our goal isn't to sell the book, so it's okay. As long as they start using it, it's all good. If they can well, a go good the... book will sell itself. And it sounds to me like the fact that you've got those universities snapping it up like that, it sounds yeah. to me like it's already selling itself and you've not even released it's it yet. It's amazing. I mean, it's just, I, I can't. So I've been, I've got, had scheduled really a call a day with the university and every single day, the person either, I told you the ones that are confirmed, the other ones have all said, oh, we got to find a way to use the digital workbook in our class. So it's just, it's so exciting. It's good. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. What yeah. I think is really exciting about it is to imagine that in you know 10 years time, 20 years time, there'll be people out there in their careers that studied at university using your material. That's what I just find like, wow, well, brilliant. The thing is, I mean, it depends. And people have taken exception with this only 30% success rate of change. And, and I've seen some studies that have gone all the way up to like, well, no, 40% of the change initiatives, organization change sustain. And some people said, well, you know, it depends on how it's defined. It's, you know, it's different by industry, but there aren't any studies that give other numbers. So at this point, I just look at it and say, well, let, even let's say, just say it's greater than 50%. Let's just be really safe and say, well, if the research is correct, then there's a 50-50 chance your change initiative is going to succeed and 50-50, it's going to fail. So mm. why not put the time in advance in the planning to increase the success probability? But think about that. If we can get people in their universities learning how to do change in ways that will increase the probability of success, we can change that 30, 40% success rate, move that up. I just think it's exciting. I do. Yeah. Because every time it fails, we've now created a whole lot of people that don't trust us on the next change. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's not like a failure is an isolated event. We've influenced a whole lot of people that, oh, well, I'm not going to trust them. I'm not going to believe in the next initiative because look, they all fail. And of course, that's, I don't know if you notice the subtitle on our book, we put no more flavor of the month. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm just, you know, there's just so much of the failure that it becomes the what we expect and we want to break the cycle. I actually had that down as a, a something to bring up actually with you is that the flavor of the month because that's what, you know, 99% of the time you go into an organization and you talk about introducing a change culture and you, that's the response you get is, oh, it's just another flavor of the month. It will just die a death in six weeks. Exactly. You always get that. Exactly. Right. And the thing is, right, I struggle with that 30% of change piece because of, for me, if it fails, all, all that's done is generated another project, which is to understand why it failed and then try again learning exactly. from what you did. Exactly. <laughs> just keep no, going until it works. I absolutely agree with you. Um, but the one thing that we, what we found is, and again, it's, it's, it's not even like when a culture, a culture can only handle so many failures too. You know what I mean? Like if we're supposed to, and we can only keep our jobs so long with so many failures. I mean, you have to really, you have to, if you keep, if you can make progress in the failure, yes, but you know what I mean? Mm. You can't fail 10 times in a row and still not make progress. But the thing yeah. that we did is we systematically, and this is written in the, the descriptions written in the book, just, but I'm just going to cover it briefly. We systematically defined what is a sustainment look like. And we said it has to be six consecutive months at or better than at the point when we said that the change was implemented. And if it can sustain for six consecutive months, we call that a success. So then it was sustained, but they only have a year to get those six consecutive months. And if they can't get it, then we call it a failure. Now, I mean, you know, I hate that word, but you know what I mean? It did not sustain. Let's just say it yeah. didn't sustain. So what then we did with that information is then we could show to leadership, look, we are going to have things that don't sustain, but we're learning from them. But look, and, and we saw like, when I was at Textron, I saw I was at 30% initially, you know, all of the things I implemented. And I saw it go to 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. When I left Textron, we were at 90% sustainment with that metric. And when I left Union Pacific with hundreds a year, we were at 96% sustainment. So it is possible mm. to get to that thing that you don't even think is possible 
we could in that year's time go back several times and tweak it. I mean, we could do that. And then, which we might've originally, you might've called that a failure, but we didn't. If it didn't sustain after two months, we went back and said, what's going on? Let's problem solve, let's root cause. And then we, we had a year to get it. Just going back ever so slightly, you, you've got my brain ticking again. When does that start from? Does that, because obviously people go through the change curve, don't they? They've got to go through the shock and the denial yeah. and the frustration the, and all that yeah. sort of all the way through before they get to that acceptance piece. Yeah. Do you start it from post-implementation? Post-implementation at six months. What we do is we give, you know, we give everybody a mentor who's there with them. We stop calling them the process, the change was taking place. We stop calling them process owners and we started calling them sustainers and we created a sustainer matrix with that the mentor would would say where do you want to be when we finish with this with this implementation and they'd say i want to be here and it might be you know i i engage my people in problem solving or whatever mm -hmm. and they mentor them on the soft stuff while they're doing the implementation of in this case at union pacific it was all lean and you know scattered over 23 states with 42,000 employees. So there was a multitude of, of things happening at the same time. But then once that mentor was ready to leave, and we never called it project closure, we called it project transition because we wanted to make sure it's transitioned to a shared responsibility completely on the sustainer. And then we would just walk away and measure for six months. But if we saw a couple of months going backwards, that mentor would go back. And then, so there were many learning cycles within it and they had a year to, to meet the six months. And, you know, we just threw a dart at the six months. We said, if it's sustained for six months, then we're pretty sure it's going to last because it's delivering value and there's no data behind the six months. I mean, we did put data behind a lot yeah. of things, but Six months just sounded good. But that's good though. So, if, you know, if someone's trying to adopt this methodology in their organization, you know, feel free to sort of change those numbers to meet what works in your organization. It's not verbatim six months. It's it's open. Absolutely. In fact, that's our message throughout the whole book is that we, we wanted it to be fluid. We wanted it to be owned and, and alive. And we give a lot of ideas of a lot of like that's ideas we gave on sustaining. We gave other ideas, different ideas. We gave a whole bunch of ideas and we say, use what you want to use. I love it. I love the language as well that you're using in there, the, the, the sustainers, the you know, transition. They're great pieces of language that subconsciously get people in the right frame yeah. of mind because it's all about the people, isn't it? It's what, what Everything seems to come back to the respect for people and, and engaging those people. And, and that kind of language is definitely the, the way to get them on board. Yeah, and it's powerful. Language is powerful. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's, it's really powerful. In terms of the intended audience for the book, then, is this targeted at individuals, organizations, um, educational institutions? What areas are you targeting? Or is it all of them? Yes. And can I answer yes, even though you're going to test me later? You can say yes now. Get it out your system. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, uh, You've had your chance now. Yeah, no. Uh, so you're absolutely right. So we really wanted it. We want it to be towards board members who are thinking about changing major things in organizations, CEOs, change agents within organizations, people that are involved in change teams that are members of change teams, people who don't know anything about change and just want to be exposed to it. And then we want to get it in the educational system and let students learn about it. So we see it, you know, they always want to know when you're, when you're doing a book, who is your target audience? So yeah. we do, I mean, primarily people who are implementing change would be our primary audience. Humans. Humans, yeah, all humans. Yeah, not, not dogs. We kind of ruled out dogs. Cats, we were on, were on the fence with cats, but you know, so we said humans and cows, but then our publisher said, no, you gotta take out cows. So, okay, I'll stop. <laughs> Very good though. Very good answer. I like it. Because that, that is a question that comes up a lot. Who, you know, what's the best one for me to use? Which one's targeted at me? And I think the fact that you're very broad with this just goes to show that it is something that anyone can pick up and, and run with. And it is, like you say, fluid and flexible. It's not a rigid model. Some people get switched off when you use the term model. I know leaders in organizations where I've gone in and I've been on sort of conference calls with them and I've mentioned the word model and you just see their face just go. Yeah not interested because yeah. you mentioned model it's quite common there's trigger words and i think what's so interesting is that it's almost some things are we we feel like they're so set in stone or that we tr we treat some 
of these concepts, almost like, like a religion that is, we've been handed down yeah. the 10 commandments or something, and they come from above. And, and so it feels like sometimes people, instead of being thoughtful about the whole message will latch on one word and then they'll just shut down. That's why we said language is powerful. We're not going to call it project closure. It's a transition. It yep. doesn't close. It goes on and we expect continuous improvement even after that. And I don't know why that is. I try not to do it myself. I do do it sometimes. So somebody will say one of those words and it's almost like too, you feel like sometimes you feel like you're better than other people because you don't use words. That, <laughs> you know, oh, you I know, know what I think it is. Yeah. I think it comes from past experience. If you've had yeah. a bad experience with a model in right. the past, you right. because I'm the same with math. If someone says to me, oh, this, this exam is going to involve math. I've failed before I've even started. Uh. Because I had such a bad experience sure, of it in the sure. past. I just don't believe in my ability to be able to do it. So I switch off straight away. Yeah, yeah. That's what I think it is. I've never explored it. But if I was, you know, I think you're right. a statistical man, wouldn't be surprised. So next question for you then. I'm firing them at you here, Lynn. They're coming quick and fast. <laughs> so what distinguishes change questions from other books on change management? So what unique perspectives or or methodologies. We shouldn't say that word, Rick, because we're trying to avoid that. Oh, no. But what do you bring to the table that others don't? Oh, a model. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off. I'm switched off. I don't want it. <laughs> okay. So I can answer this two ways. I'm going to choose what I think is the most interesting, but the narrow way. One of the things that we did is we blended a couple of concepts that are out there in the change world and in the research to form something that I think is so very powerful. And that is people, many people are familiar with the change curve. Michael Hammer kind of popularized it. It's 20% of the people accept change, 60% are neutral, and 20% will react negatively against it. And what, you know, of course, if somebody rolls any kind of change out to everybody at the same time, the thing that we've really focused on is the fact that what you really need to get is that middle 60%. Malcolm Gladwell, the tipping point. You need the middle. But think about who has the loudest voice. It's the negative folks. So if you roll mm. out peanut butter spread, that middle will be influenced tipping towards the the against it and then you know Malcolm Gladwell you lose your tipping point and then you're going to fail. We spend a lot of time on that concept to influence the middle 60%. Um one of the ways we do is we say when you're going to choose a pilot or an experiment if you have a choice we often choose, oh, what's the most difficult problem? Where's the most visibility? What's this? What's that? We say choose a change agent. Find a change agent because change leaders who are change agents tend to hire change agents and people who don't like change tend to leave. So they self-select out. So you've got a change agent for your pilot and you do your learning trial there with people who know that they're there to help make it better and they don't get freaked out. And then we talk about recognition, which is one of the change questions. And what we do is we, before we've even started that pilot, we have thought about how are we going to pull out these success stories and publicize them like crazy. So the minute we get a tiny success, it goes in the company newspaper, the CEO mentions it, we blah, 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 blah. Now that 60% in the middle is the, the people that are against it don't even really know about it. All of a sudden, the middle folks are going, ooh, we want that, we want that, we want that. And then you start getting tipping in the right direction. And so it's using a couple of principles that I think we've combined pretty creatively in order to create a process that can increase the probability of success. Oh, you're so on point, Lynn. You are spot on. Do you know something that I've found to be really effective within organizations most recently? Uh, I know I'm biased, so to bear with me, but podcasting, if, you, if you're in an organization, it's very easy to do an organizational podcast mm -hmm. where you can call out those successes. You can actually interview hmm. the people on the shop floor that sure. have had the minor success that want to shout about it. Yeah. And it reaches out to a whole new audience yeah. because quite often that 60%, they might not read the newsletter that comes out. Yeah. They might not read the 150 emails they get an hour. Yeah. They don't have time to do it. You give them a really interactive, engaging podcast that shares this success story. Mm -hmm. And what it does as well is it captures the emotion so you can hear the passion in people's voice. That's you, can, right. you can basically feel and touch the excitement. Yeah. 
podcasting and it doesn't have to be difficult it's, you can do it with just a bob standard microphone that you do a conference call with yeah but if you create that media and it drives that excitement it's such a great tool for calling out those successes i really believe in it i really do i love that and you know one other thing to jump onto that what we did at union pacific is when we were introducing lean we have 23 different service units which is you know, in these states, we have all these different places that are really kind of clusters of where our trains go. And we knew that we needed a pilot and we wanted to choose three pilots out of the 23. And so instead of choosing in advance or whatever, we put a call out and we said, we're going to do this. It's going to be publicized at the highest, highest, the CEO is going to be talking about it. Everybody's going to be coming, watching it. You're going to get resources. It's going to improve your metrics. But we we don't want to make you do it because psychologically you nobody wants to be told what to do. Nobody you <laughs> want to want you want to want it right. So we yep. said volunteer to put your name on a list, and we're going to choose the three pilots. And then what do you know? Like every one of them now they they all put their names in. Now they willingly even if they may did it just to be like everybody else, they've now put their name on a list. I want to be a part of it. So we started with the pilots. We had some of them come to us and say, hey, we're going to start anyway, because they saw all the publicity these pilots were getting. They said, we're not going to wait for you. We're just going to start. I mean, yeah, <laughs> talk, talk about, you know, getting that middle, the neutrals over it was really powerful. Yeah, there's nothing more pleasing than when you get those neutrals in a room. If you're running some kind of change event and you have those neutrals in the room, they can, you know, they throw out all the negative questions that sometimes they can sort of play up to the room and give it the bigger and this doesn't work. We've done this before, right. it's flavor of the month and all that. There's nothing more amazing than working through the process of change with them. And sort of six weeks later, they're the ones that are out there going, this is an amazing change. Look what's yeah, happened. It's great. The buzz i get it's from i love to video those people on day one and then video them six weeks later <laughs> that's Be great brilliant. that's a, that's a good idea that's very cool but you get them everywhere don't you yeah, those and then they're not no one nobody goes into work or well, very few people go into work to deliberately be negative right. and deliberately do a bad job right. they don't go in I'm, I'm really crap at this right. today i just don't fancy doing it people genuinely want to be good at what they do and they want recognition for that yeah that, that tends to be the way Another question for you, Lynn. Here we go. Can you highlight any case studies or real life examples that feature in the book that illustrate the effectiveness of the change questions that you use? Yeah, so for sure. So one of the things we did, you know, in healthcare, you've heard of longitudinal studies. It's it's where they follow a group of patients or people for two years, three years, four years um, and measure them periodically. We decided before we even started this, because it's such a big initiative, we were going to start, we called it a panel survey. And so what we did was we went out and we did a stratified, and we're going to talk a little math here, stratified, random, <laughs> I saw you, <laughs> a stratified random sample that, that was representative. So for instance, if we had 5% of the whole 42,000 employees were conductors in the Northern region, then 5% of our sample was conductors in the northern region so it represented the the company it was random we went out to each of these people randomly chose them and said do you want to do this we're going to survey you every six months it will take you 10 minutes to do it and nobody not your boss only one person in the company will know who's doing it so no one you'll will ever see your answers they'll all be consolidated and we'll be able to look and make inferences back to the whole company and you will influence this whole union pacific initiative this you'll be a part of it and almost everybody signed up and so when we started doing these surveys every six months, we got a 85 to 95% response rate every single time. So we could make inferences back to all 42,000 employees. And we could see, and we were asking them questions about this lean initiative. Have you used standard work? Has your engagement increased? Do you think this will make your job better? Will you think this will increase customer satisfaction? How many times in the last six months have you done 5S? I mean, we asked a lot of questions like that so we could get at all different elements. And we came up with composite scores that showed us how uh, lean was embedding itself in the organization over this four-year period of time that we measured. And what we found is year one, we had all these anecdotal cool stories. We had metrics that increased, but we wanted to correlate 
these this composite score of lean adoption with operational metrics overall at the company because we had you know the the key indicators for the whole company and every service unit was ranked in an order we wanted to correlate those is it delivering at the very highest level first year no correlation and we were doing oh. statistical correlation no correlation but we could we had all these great success stories we had we had individual metrics that were changing like crazy, but we couldn't get it up to the highest level. There was too much noise. So second year, it got close, but you're not allowed to say close in stats. It still was not statistically <laughs> significant. So we were like, oh my gosh, really? By year three, strong correlation. And in fact, the top five service units in terms of performance were the top five service units in terms of lean implementation and the bottom lowest were the bottom lowest. I mean, it was dramatic. Yeah. So yeah, it was very cool. And then we have engagement scores and then we also saw a correlation between employee engagement and in the areas where the lean was the strongest. So really good results. Yeah, what a great story as well. And it just goes to show that sometimes you need to be patient with these things. You know, yeah. you can't just take that year one because of you'd have been on a hiding to nothing. That 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 was incredible. What a great story. In terms of the book then, what do you hope readers will take from Change Questions and how do you envision it impacting their professional journey? Well, what I hope is that anybody implementing any change, large or small, that they will ask themselves these 11 questions or more if they find that they need them and take the answers to those questions that are appropriate and plan that implementation before they start. And then I hope that it leads to increased sustainment in change throughout throughout everyone who uses it. I have no doubt that it will. I'm, I'm really excited about this and I'm going to be gag uh, gagging. I'm going to be grabbing <laughs> myself a copy, not gagging. Oh, I think I'm that be was a anyway. Freudian slip. Oh, shit. I'll be gagging you, the book. Can you edit that out possibly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take that bit out. It sounds terrible. I'll be, I'll, I'll be grabbing a copy of the book when it comes out for sure, because of I think it's a real different angle and a different take on what you see in change management books that you see out there. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that different approach. Right. The time has come, Lynn. I have an, an extraordinary challenge for you. Uh -huh. This is the yes, no game. Ironically called yes, no, because you can't actually say yes or no. Heard of this before? I, you mentioned it, but I sustained from listening all the way to your podcast to the end because I want to see if I can do it. I have not practiced. You haven't practiced and you haven't benchmarked. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> this is going to be really interesting. <laughs> so the way it works here on the Ever Celine podcast is you'll hear some very dramatic sounding music that just adds a bit of pressure to what mm. you're trying to do. Thank you. I've got three cards in front of me. Mm -hmm. Each card has a different topic. Now, I will ask you which card you want to pick, and then we'll have 60 seconds on the clock. And we need to see if you can last the full 60 seconds before you slip up and say yes, no. What percentage of your folks last the full 60 seconds? Well, actually, good question. I've not done that statistical analysis, but what I can tell you is we tend to have two types of people. You have the people that, that fail literally within a few, few seconds, or you <laughs> okay. have people that last all the way through. Very rarely do you get people that sit in the middle. Huh, which is quite interesting. interesting. Okay. And we've okay. had various different tactics deployed where people have been very strategic in their approach. Yeah. Uh, and at the moment, I couldn't tell you what the best approach is. What I can tell you, though, is some of the smartest people that I've spoken to have failed this straight away. So it's absolutely no, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't explain anything at all. Okay. So okay. don't worry. All right. All good. Do you want card number one, card number two, or card number three? Three. Card number three is fairy tales hmm. fairy, you know fairy tales things like cinderella and snow white and the seven dwarves and things like yes, that yes i do want you failed already that was <laughs> that was a trick that was a trick that wasn't it there was no dramatic music don't worry this is going to be interesting and and this is you know this is first time i don't redo this this is exactly as it comes across right yes so oh, no one there's no, no oh but there's no, it, there's no music yet okay I'm no, sure. it doesn't start yet right are you I'm ready a, for this i guess i'm a yes person yes i'm ready you're a, yeah you're a yes <laughs> but you're good to have around lynn <laughs> right we have 60 seconds ready and loaded for lynn she cannot say yes or no on everything to do with fairy tales right lynn is cinderella a fairy tale Cinderella is definitely a fairy tale. Cinderella is my heroine. Heroine. Uh, heroine. Good stuff. Heroine. Does Snow White? <laughs> does Snow White have seven dwarves? Snow White 
has seven dwarves. They're little tiny people that have all kinds of skills like sleepy and grumpy. Dopey. Things like that. Yeah, stop cheating. Did Little Red <laughs> Riding Hood encounter a wolf in the woods? A wolf in the woods was very much encountered by Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> was it a wolf or a, or a fox? A, a fox was not in the story, as I recall. Definitely a wolf. I would say definitely a wolf that looked like Grandma. Remember, it had it did, a, yeah. what big teeth you have, what big eyes you have. Remember that. Is Sleeping Beauty awakened by one true love's kiss? Oh, one true love's kiss. That's how I'm awakened every morning. You did it, Lynn. You lasted sixty seconds. <laughs> I closed my eyes and tuned you, you out. Did. I could see the concentration in your face. It was incredible. You you did very well. They were, and I tried really hard to catch you out as well. No, thank you. That was very good. To think that you failed about four times in the lead up to it, and then you did it like that. That was brilliant. You see, that's the, that's the whole lesson of this whole thing. We fail, we learn, we get better. And we get perfect 100% sustain rate. As if by magic. What a perfect, seamless leap. That was absolutely uh, brilliant. Well done. I'm super impressed with that. That, that bodes well for the book. It really does. Oh, it's, it's a good example. there is a correlation between how people do and how well their book sells. <laughs> yeah, there is. There is. Okay. okay. So, Lynn, where can people go to learn more about you or get in contact with you or, or buy the book? Where actually is it? So the book is on Amazon. It is in print, Kindle and audiobook. And John Shook and I read little parts, and then we have professionals read other little parts. So it's it's uh, if you don't like I my didn't voice, know that that's even wait. better. That's brilliant. John will read his, and uh, yeah. So um, no, I just said yeah, and I thought <laughs> it's in your yeah. mind now. <laughs> In my mind. Okay. And then, uh, yes, if you would like to get a hold of me or primarily me, and I can pass along to John, of course, it's changequestions.net. And there is a place to say, ask Lynn. And uh, and then also my direct email is lynnkellychange at gmail.com. So there's lots of ways. Lots Fabulous. Of and I will put all of those links down below so that people can access them really easy. And you said something to me the other day, Lynn, that has blown my mind. And I've, I've got to say it now because everyone's going to be like, wow, you have only just forayed into social media, haven't you? Like literally within the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Two weeks ago. It's amazing. My whole life. I have avoided social media. I have no idea why. I'm an introvert. I, I'm just, what can I say? And uh, yeah, two weeks ago, I started my, the, the books. They said, the publisher said, you have to do this. I'm like, no. Change the world. Fun. I'm having fun. I'm reached, I'm yeah. connecting with people I haven't seen in a million years. And what's so incredible fun. on LinkedIn, you've got more connections on LinkedIn than I have. And you've only been doing it for two weeks. <laughs> oh, stop. It's amazing. No way. No. Yeah, you're a popular person. Uh, Brilliant. Well, Lynn, look, it's been an absolute pleasure. It really has me been. Too. I've, I've enjoyed really it. enjoyed talking to you. And this book's going to be amazing. Yeah, let's talk every day like this, okay? Just call me every day. We'll, yeah. we'll talk like an hour. We'll do the yes, no game every yeah. day. You'll soon yeah. get Great. I love there. it. Yeah, good. Thank you. It's, it's been fun. And I'm really looking forward to change questions. It is what it, in the UK, there's this TV advert where there was a paint for painting your fence in your house and it was called Ron Seal. And their marketing campaign was Ron Seal. It does what it says on the tin. So basically, that was their their tagline <laughs> for their paint, and and that's your book. Change questions. It does what it says on the tin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad you didn't write our tagline. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. I'll charge you a fortune for that. Thousands. Some key takeaways from today's fantastic session with Lynn. Now, research varies, but it's a safe bet that the probability of implementation of change being a success is between 30 and 40 percent. The Change Questions book aims to increase this probability based on a Union Pacific case study. It offers 11 flexible questions to consider before implementing change with the goal of achieving sustained success defined as six consecutive months of meeting or surpassing the point of implementation within a 12-month period. So basically maintaining or improving on what was there before during that 12-month period for a solid six months. The book encourages a fluid approach, allowing readers to choose relevant ideas and take ownership of the change process. 
To support implementation, a digital workbook is available for free at changequestions.net, providing additional information and basically a useful guide. You don't need to have purchased the book to use the workbook either. You can download it now for free at changequestions.net. Lynn emphasised the value of learning from failure. I cannot advocate enough that planning for failure with mitigating actions and encouraging adapting and overcoming challenges to make progress is so worth its weight in gold. Data-driven decision-making and a focus on language that fosters ownership are highlighted throughout Lynn's words today. Such a good message and so true. If you look at the best companies in the world that have got the best records of deploying continuous improvement and change, they will all use the right language and they will all learn from failure, adapt and overcome. Look at the space industry. Look at motorsport. Look at sports in general. It's the same model used absolutely everywhere and it works. It's so true. Now, language use is so powerful. Lynn described today how process owners have been replaced with sustainers who are mentored and coached during implementation. As change continues post-implementation, the mentors step back and the project closure becomes project transition. If issues arise, mentors return and offer support. But can you see how they flip the word? So project closure makes it sound like it's finished, whereas project transition makes it sound like it's just moving through another phase, which is exactly what's happening because change just doesn't stop. You don't implement it and go, right, we're done. See you later. Goodbye. See you later, Rod. It doesn't happen like that, does it? But the language we use is so important. The Change Questions book target audience includes board members, CEOs, change agents, individuals involved in change initiatives and students. The approach blends elements of the change curve, emphasising the importance of engaging middle of the road or neutral groups to ensure success. If you can engage and involve those neutral groups in the middle, your 30 to 40% success rate is going to fly. It's going to take off. The selection of pilot sites is based on change agents rather than on location, ensuring ample support and publicity for successful transitions. Lynn's example involves seeking volunteers through a call to arms, empowering individuals to make their own choices rather than change being imposed upon them. Lynn said that nobody likes to be told what to do. People like to feel like they're in control and making their own decisions, choosing their own destiny. And we can do that. We can empower them to do that by asking for volunteers. Who wants to try this new process? Who wants to be a trailblazer for change in this scenario? People volunteer. They're going to own it more. They're going to give you a better representation of what can be achieved. Lastly, change is acknowledged to take time to embed. And continuous improvement initiatives may require patience, but the rewards are so worth the effort. The book advocates a long-term perspective, emphasising the correlation between continuous improvement and performance. And in Lynn's example, year one and year two, they couldn't find any statistical correlation between the two. However, jump forward to year three, bang, statistically, the sites that were most engaged in continuous improvement, most engaged in lean, that had done all of the learning, their continuous improvement journey was actually matching the performance. Both of them were were really high, but it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. Such an interesting discussion with so many valuable takeaways. I could have spoke to you about for hours about these. I really could have done. That brings us to an end of this episode of the Ever Celine podcast. Thanks so much to Dr. Lynn Kelly for joining us today and giving us such a valuable insight into the change questions, into the book, the story behind it, the value it can bring to you and your organization, and just generally for being a fantastic human being with some good, good giggles along the way. And she smashed the yes, no game, which is always a bonus. If you like the sound of today's show and would like to hear more, please subscribe and follow the Everseline podcast at everseline.com. We'll also find a back catalogue of episodes that you might have missed. So check them out. If you can, please take a moment to like and review it on the platform that you listened. I'd be extremely grateful and your review means so much. And I really do appreciate each and every one. If you're on the socials, just like Lynn, search for the Everseline podcast. Give me a like and a follow and let me know all about your lean efforts because I really would love to hear all about them. Thanks so much. And I'll see you on the next episode. And don't forget, Everseline, you know it makes sense. The Everseline podcast is researched, produced and recorded by Matt Sims. Visit everseline.com to find out more.